I've seen a lot of other folks my age who have said like, yeah, I'm going to get a poli-sci degree and then I'm going to get a master's and go to Georgetown, work on the Hill, and then work for my congressman on the campaign side. And then I'll run for local office and then state and federal. And it's like they have it all planned out. And I'm just like, dude, I have no idea. Like, I, I can't plan this stuff out. And the quote said, if not us, then who? If not now, then when? It's a question John Lewis has been asking his entire life. Welcome back to Why Not Us. Again, I'm your host, Porter Bowman. Well, we're taking a big step, everyone. We're finally moving out of New England. Can you believe it? This week's interview with Indiana State Representative Chris Chung will be a treat for you all. Chris became the first Asian American to serve in the Indiana State Legislature, and he did so in 2018 at the age of 25. Chris is an honest, sharp, and thoughtful guy, and our conversation was one of my favorites thus far. Let's get to it. All right, so Representative, uh, thank you again for joining us. Uh, before we get into your run for office, I'm curious if you can talk about your experience, you know, growing up in the Midwest um, and in Indiana. You're a son of two immigrants. Your parents came to Indiana from Korea after the war. I'm curious what were some of the moments you had growing up that tightened your connection to your home state, and especially being, you know, Asian American in a state that is almost, you know, 89% white. Yeah, it's definitely something that you learn to grow into, for sure. I mean, one benefit is the region that I represent in Northwest Indiana is in the Chicago metropolitan area. So we're not totally rural. So it's a little nice that I can get into the city and uh, see kind of that urban feel. But also, my district is a makeup of suburban, exurban, and a little bit rural as well. So growing up here was... Um, a great education, quite honestly. I love the Midwest, and I think that the values that people have here are uh, really illuminating for the rest of the country, and really um, that we something that we can all learn from. Um, for me, as a Korean person, I'm been used to growing up as seeing myself as the only Asian person in the room a lot of the time. It's not something that I'm. Uh, that that makes me feel awkward or anything like that. Um, growing up, I'm sure it did. And there are definitely moments where I felt othered. And I'm sure everyone of some part of a minority has felt that way too. But for me, it's just something I learned to grow into and I learned to get used to. And not only that, now that I'm in the state house, which is um, I am the only Asian legislator and there aren't even that many Asian staff in the on the legislative side. So now I'm learning to reconnect with my heritage a little bit uh, now that I've kind of seen what it's like to be uh, outside of it and then also met other legislators from states like California and Hawaii uh, and New York and Maryland who uh, have really done a good job connecting with their heritage and uh, seeing where their roots came from. So it's been an awesome experience for sure and it's I'm learning more every day. <laughs> That's great. Well, talk a little bit about uh, your background more, you know, you went to Columbia to get an engineering degree, moved back to Chicago, and then moved back to Indiana. I'm curious, what were some of the moments there that, you know, got you invested in public service? Did you think you were going to be uh, getting into politics? At what point did that, you know, trigger in your mind that you wanted to start uh, serving your community? Yeah, I had never actually planned to go into politics, quite honestly. It 
was um, never anything that crossed my mind. My parents had been kind of sporadic voters and my dad didn't get a citizenship until a little bit before 2016, even though we'd been in this country since the 80s. And I got my engineering degree because I was interested initially in going to Wall Street and making money because that's something that always appeals to you as a, as a young kid to try and make as much money as you can. Um, did a couple internships and hated it and realized this was absolutely not for me. Uh, with the engineering degree, I had enough flexibility. I could go work in a variety of fields and I eventually settled on a real estate company based in Chicago that focuses on investing on the south and west side. So the really disinvested neighborhoods of the city where they haven't brought a lot of uh, new money to the area to fix up apartments and make great pro apartment product for those folks. Um, a lot of the commercial real estate investing is in the city and the wealthier gentrifying neighborhoods, but I was happy to work for a company that uh, focused on the distressed neighborhoods. And it was kind of what I considered like a balance between the capitalism, but also the social responsibility. And then ultimately, um, I graduated in 2016. And then the 2016 election happened in November. And I started getting more kind of paying attention to politics and attuned to what was going on locally. And I found it really interesting. I found political strategy really interesting. I found uh, the communications and the messaging aspect really fascinating, the polling data, and, and I just threw myself into it. And I felt like there was a whole new world that I hadn't even known existed. I've never volunteered on a campaign. I've never been a part of uh, any of the college uh, Democratic Party stuff or Republican Party stuff. I never really interfaced with the political movements when I was in New York City. And seeing that this was such an important part of our life, I felt, wow, I'm really not doing my civic duty by not informing myself, by not being an informed voter, by not trying to inform other folks where our elected officials lie on important issues. So I, when I was uh, deciding to run in, 20, in 2018, after the 2016 election happened, I was looking for a campaign to work on. I was just like, I am not experienced enough. I need to find somebody that I can kind of uh, go around and help get into office. And then, you know, maybe I would consider something in the future to run for myself. And ultimately in this, in the race for state rep and house district 15, I um, couldn't find anybody who wanted to run. The folks who had run years previous said they weren't gonna do it again. Um, I was told it was a suicide mission by the local party and basically that it would be a waste of my time and uh, resources if, if I was attached to a campaign, let alone if I did end up running. So I thought to myself, you know, I'm in my 20s. I've got time. I haven't got that many bills to pay yet. It's not like I can, it's not like I have that many obligations to like take care of kids or anything. So why not just give this a shot? So I decided to throw my hat in the ring. I was unopposed in the primary. and then. With that love of political strategy, I ended up prevailing on election day by 82 votes out of 25,000. So it was really kind of unexpected on my end, but I could not be happier with the decision. And I've learned so much along the way, which I'll never regret in my life. Well, 82 votes is incredible. What, what was that election like in the fact that you, you really had to grind it out and not make every doorknob count and sort of take all of that strategy that you you love and sort of turn that into a win, you know, and, and I'm curious your thoughts on how that unfolded, but also about how, you know, what was the response like from people who, you know, who said, you know, as you said, like, this is a suicide mission. Why are you, 
why are you embarking on this? You know, I'm sure there were, you know, family and friends who were super supportive. And I'm sure there are people in your community who said, you know, the, you know, the opposite of like, you know, why, why is this guy running? What was kind of, how did you balance those two perspectives and how did that all unfold? Yeah, well, the grassroots organizing, like you said, Porter, was really important and something that I ended up falling in love with because it's just so boots on the ground and it's more of an education than I ever got at Columbia and in my four-year college degree. I think that this is something that more people need to do more of nowadays. We have too many people who are afraid to talk to people who they disagree with or worse, they do it in a way that's extremely counterproductive and condescending and really cold-hearted and mean and talking down to people. And it's And both sides are guilty of it, quite honestly. There's no one, it's not like there's one political party that has a monopoly on being a talking town to voters. So I learned so much when I on the thousands of doors I knocked and the people what their worries were, what their hopes were, what their fears and dreams were. It was an incredibly revealing education and something that I'll cherish forever. And like you had said, that balance between going on this, what pe most people had written off as a suicide mission to run against a three-term incumbent, 10-year town councilman. Uh, he had like 90% name recognition and he was actually a, a nice guy. I, I don't have anything against him personally, quite honestly. He just uh, votes in a way that I don't see as in step with the community and that's what motivated me to run. But other than that, like I, I get along with them fine. We see each other at events and I say hi to that. I say hi to him and his wife and um, and, and yeah, there's no ill will harbored for sure. But also there were those folks who said, you know, why don't you run for school board or something? Why don't you start a little small? Like, what are you doing wasting your time running for state rep? You're just like a kid. You're 25 years old and you look like you're 14. Like you're, the district has like maybe a hundred Asian people in there and you don't, you, you're, they're probably not on the same political ideological spectrum as you are. And, and there are endless reasons why I shouldn't do it and why it was a bad idea to do it. And while I did take those into account, I wasn't ignoring those folks. I was kind of just banking those into my brain as saying like, okay, well, they think this of me. What are ways that we can signal to them that we're open to their ideas, that I'm not ideologically out of step, that even though I look different on my surface, that I'm representative of the community and I was born and raised here. And that's something we really connected with, with that immigrant story that you had opened up with. I mean, my parents came here after the Korean War and uh, they were one of, they were two of only a few of their classmates to come take a chance in America. Most of their classmates stayed in Korea, but we're so glad that we came to America and this country has been such a blessing to us and our family. And we've been able to uh, create great lives for myself and my sisters and we'll be endlessly grateful for the opportunities that America afforded us. And I went back to Korea recently and I just felt like a total fish out of water. And I was just like, I am very glad I grew up in America because this just seems cult like a total cultural shock. Even though I look like you all, I, I don't feel in my bones like I'm a Korean Korean. I'm a Korean American. So yeah, that's kind of how it shook out. It kind of is still um, surprising to look back on and see that that's how the journey ended up. It's such a remarkable story. And I'm curious now that you're in the state house, what have been the advantages, maybe some of the disadvantages of being a young person you know, relatively politically inexperienced, but definitely having a lot of ambition. Um, you know, what has that been like in your first almost two years? Um, and, you know, how do you, how have you leaned on others that you've worked with 
uh, in your party and elsewhere to sort of learn the tricks of the trade and maybe do things your own way as well. There have been funny instances, I'll tell you. For for one, like I remember, so when you get when you enter into the state house from the from the uh, staff parking lot, which is where the legislators and all the staff park, you have to scan in with your ID badge. And I I got my ID badge shortly after I was elected. And as I was walking in and scanning in, one I recognized the uh, one of the senior members of the Senate. Um, um, going in right before me. And he kind of turned around and looked at me and he's just like, do you have your badge? And I was like, yeah, I ha have it in my hand right here. And he just kind of gave me a weird side eye type thing. And I, I don't know if, you know, I'm not going to make jump to conclusions about uh, what kinds of things he was thinking at the time, because I won't know. But it was kind of one of those off moments where I'm sure if I were a little bit older, a little bit taller, <laughs> a little bit whiter, I wouldn't have gotten that kind of dressing down after right after I was elected and walking into my uh, workplace. Um, but you know, I I don't I take it in stride. I know that people are have got to learn to be a little more open-minded and I'm patient. I'm super patient with people. So if, if that's what it takes to get a little more acceptance and that's, I'm fine with being that, that person who will take those slings from the beginning and then pave the groundwork for people going forward. And it, it, it's funny because I expected honestly a little more racism quite honestly in the state house, but really what I've seen more of in my first term has been ageism. People have been a lot more skeptical that I look so young and that I, you know, don't have the lived experience of, of them, of these, you know, 60, 70 year old guys who have been there and been in all levels of government and have been a creature of the state house for so many years. And some of them came to lobby and then got into, leg into the legislature and some of them went out of the legislature back into lobbying. So there's a bit of a revolving door effect. Um, but it was so funny because one time there was a Purdue University day, Purdue being a big college in our state that depends, of course, heavily on state funding and different programs that we set up for the state, especially in agriculture. And I was just talking to some uh, students there and they were saying like, eventually we got to the point where they asked me, so so do you work here? And I'm like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in the house. And they're like, oh, who do you intern for? <laughs> and I was just like, no, no, I'm, I'm in the house. I wasn't wearing my assembly um, uh, pin on my on my jacket so but they just assumed I was an intern and they're just like oh wait no no I've heard of you I'm so sorry Eddie. and I'm like no no it's okay I don't care like I think it's pretty funny and it's one reason I don't go around wearing the pin not only because I think I might lose it and I'm worried about that but also because it allows me to kind of blend into the background and sort of eavesdrop when I'm in the elevator and people are people don't realize I'm a legislator so it can kind of just get a little more interesting tidbits so it's it's super interesting it's a incredibly fun job and there are just so many more stories like that that being kind of a fish out of water uh has allowed me to uh, not only learn but to also kind of see that forefront of where we can go in the future right that's such a such a unique perspective i love that standing in the elevator that's that's a great trick um i'm curious just getting to your work a little bit um you know you obviously, I'm sure now are focusing a lot on the pandemic and lots of other issues around that. I'm sure you're helping, you know, Hoosiers with voting and education and health issues. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that work and just handling the state's response and, and maybe just how you've been able to shift your relationships with constituents now that you're spending more time at home in your district and um, you know, and how that's that work has changed and, and developed um, over the last five months or so. 
Yeah, it's, you know, we never thought we would be in a position like this. I mean, six months ago, if you told us we would all be wearing masks and I mean, some of us would be fighting about it and getting very upset on social media and in Walmart about wearing masks. And, you know, if, if you had told me that we would be dealing with 170,000 American deaths and counting, I would have just looked at you like you were crazy. I mean, we were not having these discussions earlier in the year. We were talking about how we could uh, leverage a strong economy and great tax collections in order to set up programs that work best for Hoosiers and to make sure that they're seeing their hard-earned tax dollars go to work for them. Um, but it was, of course, upended on its head. And we were fortunate enough that our legislature being part-time, we adjourned around mid-March. And that, I feel, was kind of the time when it was really starting to take a grip in people's minds. Like Tom Hanks got it, so it was like really high profile then. And then also they canceled the uh, like NCAA and NBA games, and they were starting to cancel conventions in Indianapolis, uh, which is big for our local economy in the summer months. And it was just so shocking that we were uh, dealing with this all of a sudden. And we've been able to pivot to working remotely pretty seamlessly. We still have regular meetings with our staff at the State House, and they've been doing a great job working remotely. I've been having a lot more emails and Zooms and calls with folks to make sure that we are creating a post-pandemic budget that really reflects the needs of Hoosiers. And my personal view is that this $35 billion budget that we pass every two years, and it, and it usually grows, um, this is a lot of money, obviously, and we need to make sure that, especially in economically distressed times, like it's going to be for the near future, that we're focusing on Hoosier workers, Hoosier people and families, not just the political donor class people, not the people who are inside and out of the state house representing the big multinational corporations. I mean, personally, I think they're gonna be A-OK. -okay. The few stocks that I have are going way up and are doing fine. The, uh, there's the PPP programs, the idle loan programs for Main Street businesses. There's the uh, Fed and Treasury joint uh, bond buying program where they're buying not only corporate rated bonds, but also junk rated corporate bonds um, so that they're so that corporate America is able to uh, be mostly stabilized. But I'm worried about the families. I'm worried about the record unemployment claims that we're dealing with. I'm worried about the fact that the Indiana's unemployment system filing system run through the Department of Workforce Development is so backlogged and is has I've had to deal with so many delays even myself constituents come directly to me saying I've been waiting for two or three months for my claim to be investigated or for a call from somebody from DWD so that I can get my the money that I'm well deserved um, and and there are just so many backlogs technologically and on the human side, there are just not enough staff and there's not enough resources putting towards making sure that this is an efficient uh, form of government and not just a bureaucracy that's meant to put a bunch of hurdles in front of Hoosier taxpayers. So it's really important for us to focus on how we can build back from this pandemic and be stronger and make a government that's more streamlined and focused on working people. Uh, point blank. So I'm hoping that in the next legislative session that we'll be able to to accomplish that. And if if we can't, I mean, we'll be holding holding politicians' feet to the fire, feet to the fire, so that we can make sure that we do do that. That's really really important. I'm I'm curious in what have been some of the most rewarding experiences and things that you and your staff have done for your constituents 
whether within the pandemic or earlier or things you're planning to do. Um, I'm sure it's obviously changed, you know, how you're communicating and, you know, holding town halls and things is obviously very different, but, um, you know, what have been maybe some stories about, um, ways that you've helped individuals or groups, um, you know, during, during some difficult times. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of things and from the very small to the, to the large that have a large impact on the uh, other people in the state. But just in my district alone, we've had like, um, I had a constituent who moved over to my district from Illinois. We're right across the Illinois border and his uh, professional license for, I think it was physical therapy, uh, had not transferred over from Illinois. So he was saying, Chris, I've got to start my job next week. And if I, if my, I thought my license would be transferred over by now, but the state has been so slow and I haven't been able to get it through and I might not be able to legally start work on Monday and start making money to feed my family. And we got on the horn right away. We called the, uh, the professional licensing agency and our liaison there was able to expedite his license and bump him to the top of the queue so that the next day he had his license and was able to go to work and he was so grateful and you know i have no idea where he lies on the political spectrum i don't even know if he's a registered voter quite honestly but the fact that we were able to do something for that was a small act for us but a big act for this guy this fellow was something that i thought was so rewarding and you know that was a day where i was just like all the stresses of the email and the social media cacophony and the bitterness in, in electoral politics nowadays and the, the media um, and, and all kinds of chaos that we're seeing, all of that kind of just melted away when we were able to just get to the brass tacks of helping um, this, this constituent. Also, not only that, but in this pandemic, we were able to secure a donation of N95 masks from the Korean consulate. And I had had lunch with the Korean consulate earlier this year uh, in Chicago just to talk about some of the um, important trade relationships that Indiana has with Korea, specifically with steel and agriculture and uh, manufacturing is very important to Indiana as well. And automotive manufacturing is important to Korea. And we were able to talk about how some of the relationships are there and how we could build better on the trade, the existing trade relationships to uh, get a mutually beneficial relationship. And they came out of the blue with a donation of, of masks for us that we gave to the local uh, Black Nurses Association in our county, who was running short on masks for their own members, uh, just because of all the shortages that we've been hearing about in the media. So it was kind of a cool bridge to see that, that there was that uh, side of Korea and the Korean consulate and their folks, and then me in the middle, and then the Lake County Black Nurses Association on the other end. And we were kind of able to bring people together in new and unique ways. And those are kind of the things that are on the smaller end of what we do. But then the legislative votes that we take, I mean, I serve on the House Financial Institutions Committee, and that's where some of our most important work gets done in, in regards to uh, payday lending and whatnot. I mean, the payday, the short-term high interest lenders, always come back with new proposals to extend these risky products to elderly folks, to indigent folks, to veterans, and to uh, people of lesser means. And my personal belief is that I don't want to trap people in debt and the state shouldn't do anything to, in, to um, encourage people getting trapped into a cycle of debt that they can't get, get out of. So I was proud that in our first session, we were able to kill a particularly bad piece of legislation that 
stood to be that stood to total in the hundreds of millions of dollars on uh, working Hoosiers who would have taken out these loans uh, in in debt payments and and getting into that debt trap. And by preventing that bill, we were able to save them money, in my opinion. So um, there are all kinds of things from the small to the large that I think elected officials uh, can do for their communities. And it's been uh, quite a great experience, I have to say. Well, it seems like you've really come, you know, grown into the job pretty quickly. Um, you know, you, you've, you've expressed your support for actually bringing down the age limit to run for office in Indiana, you know, in the House of 21, Senate 25, you want to bring those both down to 18, um, which is, I think is fantastic. Um, and I'm sure all the other young people I've spoken to um, would agree. I'm curious, um, you know, just in, in that um, realm, uh, your thoughts on on term limits? You know, right now Indiana doesn't um, uh, doesn't have any term limits in in, in the state house. Um, I'm curious how you feel about that, and whether um, you know you feel young people should have more time to be in office, or whether you think everyone should have um, you know uh, term limits in uh, in different positions. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I, I do support uh, bringing down the age specifically because it's so difficult to recruit for some of these state legislative positions. I mean, frankly, we don't make a lot of money, so it doesn't, it doesn't really encourage young folks who are paying off giant uh, college debt burdens to go into a job that they don't get very well paid for, and they're on the clock all the time, and they're subjecting them, their personal and private lives to the public eye and all kinds of criticism. Uh, I get why it would be difficult. But at the same time, if you're an, my, my view was that if you're an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old, and you win a primary election, you win a general election, there's something really special about you. There's something really special about your ability to serve and your ability to connect with your constituents. And you're probably a brilliant person quite Quite honestly. Now you can imagine a lot of the older legislators were like, I don't want some young kid running against me. So regardless of party, both of them were kind of hesitant about the idea when I was in uh, talks on, with both, on both sides of the aisle about the bill. Um, so it's, it's something that I think is necessary for both parties. And even I was able to uh, partner up with a uh, youth leader in the state who's completely on the opposite end of the political spectrum as I am, but we both saw eye to eye on this issue. And on the term limits piece, I would say that even though I'm, I'm supportive of expanding this pool, at the same time, I am supportive of term limits as well. I kind of get worried about these um, legislative offices where the person's in there for 40 years and it's just like, you know, times change, America changes and faster than ever nowadays, especially with the growth of technology, the landscape of governing is not gonna be the same year after year. And it's, you're gonna have to really be attuned to the, the shifting tides of this country. So for me, it was all about getting, making sure that we, we don't treat this as just some cushy government job where you're getting paid to on the taxpayer dime to just, you know, go out and, and talk to the papers and be kind of like the local uh, hotshot person in, in, in the media. And, and how it's, it's not about yourself. It's about serving the community. And for me, I believe that if we have a reasonable term limit expectation in our state, then we'll be able to not only build a, a great bench of folks going into office, but also um, be able to keep the office available to the people in a democratic fashion. I mean, the 
the burden, the cost burden and the time burden of running a full-fledged campaign is enormous. And especially with an incumbent, uh, there's a lot of other advantages there in, with name recognition and with uh, frank, franking privilege, that's taxpayer funded mail that goes out to constituents. Um, there's all kinds of built in advantages that make it difficult uh, when the district might need to change and the person representing them might be completely out of step. Um, at the same time, I do recognize that, like, I have friends in the Michigan legislature, and I think their term limit in the House is like six years or something. So it's, it's really short, like three terms only. And a lot of those folks say, on the flip side, the when you have too short of a term limit you give all the power to the lobbyists all the corporate lobbyists are the ones who dictate the policy because these new folks have to build relationships have to build up the knowledge and if you're just a retired farmer or retired insurance agent you know nothing about healthcare policy you know nothing about what it means to uh, set utility rates in indiana all that stuff is going to be dictated by the lobbying corps if if you don't build up that uh, institutional and ancestral knowledge in there. So I thought my term limits uh, pledge was enough, enough reasonable at eight years in the House and 12 years in the Senate in order for us to not only build up that expertise, but balance the fact that legislators should have independent resources and not just rely on lobbyists in the hallway to dictate the policy. That's a phenomenal answer. Um, that's very thoughtful and definitely, I think, something that young people in office are thinking about um and that's 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 remarkable i'm curious just to follow up on your um you know think thinking big a little bit you know our the name of the podcast is you know comes from a quote from john lewis who you know said if not us then who if not now then when you obviously took the the onus upon yourself to to run for office i'm curious you know as you have shifted into a life of or at least a moment of public service you know, who have been some of your heroes in Indiana or nationally who have, um, you know, inspired you and who have sort of, uh, you know, been, been the lights that have, uh, that have shown, shown you the way, um, you know, in your early, early years in public service? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny that, um, that it's, that it is this way, but a lot of people wouldn't think of Indiana as kind of a hotbed of, political trailblazers by any means. I mean, certainly we have folks who have had really high profiles, but um, we've had a lot of low-key politicians as well. In the past, I'd say, let's go back maybe 30 years or so, we've had a number of uh, people who, from both sides of the aisle, who were explicitly known for their bipartisanship, for their caring and understanding. Uh, we had the Bai family, Evan and Birch Bai, who served as governors and senators in our state. And uh, even though they were Democrats, they worked with Republicans across the aisle to spearhead a lot of important policies related to uh, taxation and uh, fiscal responsibility, and also um, it, it making sure the social safety net was strong in our state and that we were focusing on working people and uh, union members as well. And at the same time, we had folks like uh, uh, Senator Dick Luger, who recently passed away, actually, I think it was one or two years ago, who was such a statesman in, uh, who represented Indiana. And as a Republican, I think he was one of President Obama, well then Senator Obama's best friends in the United States Senate and worked to uh, broker an arms deal, uh, an arms, a, peace, a ceasefire um, a peace, peace deal um, uh, in Europe after the Cold War. So it was just like, 
it was it was phenomenal. I was able to have the fortune to be invited to his funeral and to see the level of history that was made um, uh, with with these folks and and seeing how it, you know one person really can have a huge huge impact on society and to get that nuclear arms treaty to get to get those arms out of the hands of dangerous folks um, was something that the world will be forever grateful for and. It's it feels like it's part of a bygone era kind of I mean that bipartisanship that genteel politics is not really what people are fired up about nowadays on either in either political party, quite honestly, and a part of me gets it like there have been years of built up frustration at the political establishment for being whatever sellouts or being people who don't don't put the focus of ordinary people and put the focus of cor corporations and the political donor class ahead of focusing on just the regular guy down the street who's struggling to make uh, mortgage payments or struggling to pay for his kid's college or struggling to make payments on his car that's falling apart. I mean, these simple things are really what politics has to get back to. And we're not seeing enough of that um it, it, as of late so i think that's why there's such a polarization where both sides have really entrenched in their own um in their own camps and not really done the work to reach across the aisle and get things done and i'm not saying you know compromise and be a spineless politician who doesn't stand up for your beliefs even though i'm sure like what what a little bit of what i just said might be interpreted that way but what i'm really trying to say is that people need to stand up for ideas that are bold and at the same time focused on ordinary people, not just uh, people who are on the coast or not just people who are in the Midwest, not just uh, people based on the color of their skin, but people who are just working class people who need a hand from the government and who need that helping hand up and not a handout. I mean, that's that's what politics needs to get back, get back to. And I hope that um, uh, in my own way, it's not the it's not the I guess for lack of a better word sexiest thing to focus on you know the genteel aspect of historical politicians like Dick Luger and the buys. But uh, for me, it's something that guides me as my north star is saying if we can get together, that's always a better option for me than being uh, divided and not getting not making any steps forward. Like I I try to explain this to folks in the district. I'd rather, instead of promising you, I'll take 10 steps forward and take zero, like I'd rather take two and get that done. And if we get more folks and more politicians who have that kind of mentality, and I think the young people actually do have it, despite the um, rhetoric around how, you know, young people are all one way or the other or are not engaged. I think that's completely untrue. I think young people are absolutely the future of this party and are engaged at higher levels and more attuned with issues than I've ever seen and are oftentimes more attuned to issues than I am. I'm learning stuff from the Gen Z folks about uh, policies that I had never even known were in existence. And I think they're going to save us if they if they uh, get together and work on these important issues and look at this in a post-partisan mentality, look at this as a pro-worker and maybe anti-corporate, I think would be the better mentality uh, to, to ensure that we push policies that benefit everybody. Wow, well, well, with that extraordinary vision, I'm curious what's next for you. I mean, you're running for re-election, I believe, and, and you, are hoping to you know continue the work you've been doing. I'm curious what you hope to do if you are reelected and maybe just what's next for you if you've considered continuing on in a life of public service or 
know, if your parents are still holding out from med school or other things, but I'm curious <laughs> what, uh, what's, uh, what, what, what may be up next for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm never really sure, quite honestly. Like I said, the way I got into politics, I never made a plan to be a politician. I think I've seen a lot of other folks my age who have said like, yeah, I'm going to get a poli-sci degree and then I'm going to get a master's and go to Georgetown, work on the Hill, and then work for my congressman on the campaign side. And then I'll run for local office and then state and federal. And it's like, they have it all planned out. And I'm just like, dude, I have no idea. Like, I, I can't plan this stuff out. I know that politics changes on a dime with with uh, folks, I mean, uh, tides shift in and out. Some some days you can be on the top of the wheel when it comes to the political uh, strength of where you are, and then other days you can just totally sink to the bottom. So I'm just enjoying where I am right now in the state house. And once I hope to win re-election this November in 2020, then I hope, like I said, next year that we can focus on creating a post-pandemic budget for the state of Indiana that focuses on ordinary people um, and not just the political donor people. And I hope that we'll be able to also make independent redistricting happen because it's kind of absurd to me that uh, when Democrats controlled Indiana in 2000 and then Republicans controlled it in 2010, they both drew districts that were extremely partisan and beneficial to their own party. And that shouldn't be how the game is played in my view. It should be determined algorithmically to see the most fair districts, the most compact districts that are not gerrymandered across uh, town and municipal lines as much as possible and are in, uh, encouraging the most competitive districts as possible. Like my, my own district is super competitive and uh, is a, a swing district for sure, voting for Democrats and Republicans in alternating years. But it encourages me to go out and talk to my constituents more because I got to work for my reelection. I just can't kick my feet up and uh, you know, just say it's a done deal after the primary. I've got to make sure that I go out and listen to what people care about. I've got to be attuned to what my opponent's saying and what he's saying about me and how our messages jive with the rest of the community, how to toe that fine line between, uh, you know, the, the left and the right and the center. All of those things encourage me to be a better listener and a better learner and work to make actual progress instead of going out on the news shows and just saying the craziest thing possible in order to get the most clicks and views. So I, I don't plan to, uh, to, to uh, I, I guess I, I can't plan long-term as to if I wanna go into higher office or if I wanna go into local office or anything like that. I mean, I'll see how these next few years go once we get those priorities of the uh, good post-pandemic budget and the independent redistricting going, but, after that, it's, you know, it's, it's anyone's game, what, it, what, what anyone can do. There might be somebody, well, my district might get redistricted, and there might be someone who's a better fit to represent the district, and I won't disparage that. I encourage that. Um, but at the same time, I want to make sure that we're looking out for those regular people uh, in this process, because I've just seen firsthand, after not being involved in politics, being completely thrown into the middle of statehouse uh, legislative policy, what it's like to be on the outside and how kind of um, pulling back the curtain, it's such a, it's, it's a really insular process. And I don't like that. And I try to make sure that my constituents feel like they have a seat at the table. They've got my cell phone number. I get random cold calls and texts from people about issues from uh, asking the town council to fill a pothole to federal policy, even on immigration, which we have nothing to do with. And I have to explain to people that there's uh, a separation between state and federal policymaking. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, I hope I can continue to serve in some way. It might be in the private sector or it might be in government. But at any rate, like I do hope that your listeners will take away that it's just key for for young people to step up, for new and unfamiliar faces to step up, and not only to go about it in a way that you run as as saying like it, you should vote for me just because I'm new solely for the fact that I'm new the only reason I'm here is because I'm not a part of the establishment to me it's not really about that to me it's about making sure you represent the people in your district that's always the north star guiding principle for me and if you go out and have conversations and really just listen to people um, instead of pr just prescribing solutions from some policy document that you've read but just listen to people what they're what they're worried about and how you think we can get some uh, consensus change on that, then America will be a better country and we will uh, build back a lot better than we have been in the past. And we can be really proud of what we have in the future. So yeah, I hope we can, I hope we can make that happen with your generation. <laughs> well, uh, that's great. And I know we're all excited to see where you go and um, yeah, where a lot of our generation goes, there's obviously a lot um, we all need to do. I'm curious, just last final question, you know, you're, you're in Northwest Indiana, you said you're in, you know, sort of Chicago land area, suburb. Um, are you in like Chicago Bears country? Or are you in Indianapolis Colts country? Or how do you like, how does your <laughs> district toe that line? Or are you personally? It's mostly, it's mostly Bears country up here. But when I go down to Indianapolis, uh, you know, we're, we're Colts all the way and <laughs> they they sponsor a lot of stuff for, for us and, 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 you know, we like their economic development plans for the area and what the family has done to uh, make uh, like a new YMCA for the area and all the good work that they done that they do on the nonprofit and on the charitable side. But yeah, I mean, up here, I'm bears all the way down there. I'm Colts all the way. <laughs> that is very fair. I, I love that. It's a good, good answer. Um, well, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you uh, this morning. Uh, you have a phenomenal story. Really appreciate you sharing it with our listeners. And um, I know we wish you the best of luck in, uh, in everything. And, and, and thank you for your service. Thanks, Porter. My pleasure. A big thank you to Chris Chung for coming on the show. As always, we want to thank all of you for listening as we've now hit our fifth episode. Wow, what a ride it's been already, and there's plenty more in store. Until next time, stay safe and stay young.